In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. I would say to the architects of, you know, the plan to eradicate HIV by 3030, that they take in consideration the communities that they're targeting and then figure out ways to provide information and services that are appropriate for that community. In today's episode, Steve sits down with our guest, Cynthia Carey Grant in Oakland. Ms. Carey Grant is the Oakland co-chair of the AIDS 2020 conference. She has dedicated her career to women's reproductive justice, particularly for women of color, and has been a fierce advocate for the most vulnerable, including sex workers and incarcerated women. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. First of all, thank you so much for giving us time. Thank you so much for taking on this leadership role with respect to AIDS 2020. Let's start by talking a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your own career. You came out of a social justice background. You've been an activist and an advocate over the course of your career. You've become a leader. Um, tell us a bit about how did you wind up in these roles? How did that happen? I think like any other activist, the political is personal. So I am an African-American woman, and the health indicators for African-American women in this country is not the best in many areas. And as I became aware of that, uh, especially as it relates to reproductive health, um, I became concerned and wanted to do something. I can't say it was some big, you know, strategic plan. I volunteered, and as I learned more information and became more involved, I got an opportunity to make a difference. That started in, in, in reproductive justice. And what does that mean? For our mm -hmm. listeners, explain what does that mean to be an advocate for reproductive justice? What we're talking about is the right to get adequate and accurate information so that you can make the choices you need to make in your life. It's the right to um, decide whether or when you will have a child or not. It's the right to have healthy children. It's the right to have bodily integrity. And even though I'm a woman, I don't see this as something that is just something that women should be concerned about. I read an article recently about saying 100% of the unwanted pregnancies are the responsibilities of men. And I thought that was so interesting. And it just reminds us that none of this happens to individuals alone and that we have all kinds of technology and we have advances. We've had the pill for how many years? Too many to count. And yet we still have um, unplanned pregnancies. 
And so that was the case years ago when I was young. And interestingly enough, it's the case now, which probably is the reason why I'm still engaged. In terms of the HIV epidemic in the United States and the special challenges that women of color face, and looking back over three and a half decades of living with this epidemic, what have been the special challenges in your view? What have been the special challenges in making progress as an activist, the things that you've really had to struggle with? The first thing is for people to recognize that women are impacted by HIV as well. Um, In many ways, it's almost as if women were invisible for many, many years. And even before it affected us in terms of the epidemic uh, impact in our health, women were involved as caregivers. They were activists. Remember Elizabeth Taylor? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is to be visible. And, and, and then the next thing is to make sure that adequate resources address how HIV affects women, because it's different. Um, it's, it takes us back to research, health research that was conducted on men that was supposed to be, uh, you know, applied across the board to women as if women were little men. And this was no different when it came to HIV. So those are some of the big things, that, the hurdles to overcome. And then, uh, as an African-American woman, it was the realization of the disparity between how HIV uh, impacts African-American women, from, even from acquisition, even from, you know, uh, who, who, who gets infected. And, you know, if you're an African-American woman, you're 20 times more likely to acquire HIV than if you're a white woman. So it's all of those things that have spurred my activism. That and coming from the reproductive justice background, I took all of that and said, HIV is a reproductive justice issue. And again, not just for women, but for men too. If you wanna talk about body integrity and and the right to adequate, accurate, age-appropriate information, sexual uh, information, um, issues around sexuality, uh, stigma, um, HIV falls right in line with all of the principles and core values I had around reproductive justice. Let's shift now to the preparations for AIDS 2020. You're the Oakland co-chair. Mm-hmm. That has a lot of responsibility, I imagine. Tell us a little bit about what that role entails. What are you being asked to do? You, you must be very active right now in trying to engage with the community, prepare, think ahead. Tell us about the role that you fill right now. So I am the co-chair representing Oakland on the conference coordinating committee. So I have a responsibility on how the international conference is pulled together from everything related to uh, site and the global village to workshops and scholarships, all of those things. And then simultaneously, I am a a community contact and a representative that is involved in how the community is engaged in preparation for the conference. So it's it's two roles, um, one more formal, the other more community-centered. And what has been the response in the community so far? Well, the response in the community has been incredible. We have the largest engagement of community leadership in 
a conference preparation in the history of the conference. Um, and I think that still is an awe-inspiring thing. Now, locally, we're not, we're not surprised because that's the nature of the communities we live in. Both San Francisco and Oakland are communities that have leaders engaged in a lot of um, the things that happen. So um, we weren't surprised by that. We're excited about it, and it's a good thing. Um, and then locally, we're beginning to see more trickle down into the neighborhoods and you know, churches and, for example, we're sitting in a church today that <laughs> um, provides uh, space for one of the aid service organizations. So this is how it's going to sort of like manifest throughout the communities. Great. So what would success look like as you imagine getting to the conference in July of 2020? It's going to be an electoral season. It's going to be in a period where Americans' attention will be focused on the presidential race, the congressional races. It's a week before the Democratic convention, four or five weeks before the Republican convention. So this is occurring in a in a in a overheated moment, but a very, you know, very opportune moment for those who are advocates in HIV. And of course it's a global conference. So if, as you look at it, what's success in your mind? Well Actually, the fact that it, the timing of it is part of the things that made it so exciting for me to, to be in leadership and, and, and to serve in this role, because it's an incredible opportunity for us. It's an, it's an opportunity locally um, to showcase this issue in our local community uh, in a way that will have international attention and national attention. Um, we have our own... Um, local political leadership that has been engaged in the conferences over the years. So that's very powerful. But what will be successful for me is to make sure that those people who want to come to the conference are able to come to the conference, that people feel safe and feel welcomed, um, that they leave the conference having learned more and have more hope for what's possible in the future. And then what's unique about what we're doing here for the first time is that we are having two cities um, to sponsor the, the conference. And I think that that's an opportunity that can be modeled in the future, particularly for cities. Like, this would not have been possible for Oakland to have done by itself. And so to be able to do this in partnership with San Francisco, a much more affluent community with a different history in terms of the epidemic, to be able to do that with San Francisco allows for a spotlight on what's happening in Oakland, but it also allows for a legacy after the conference leaves mm -hmm. in terms of working together. Yes, and you mentioned leadership. Of course, Congresswoman Barbara Lee is your representative, hails from Oakland, has been in that role since the late 90s, and prior to that was Ron Dellums, her predecessors. Say a few words about the role that Barbara Lee plays and also Speaker Pelosi. Okay, well, first of all, I want to say Congresswoman Barbara Lee is my congresswoman, <laughs> and um, we are very proud of her. Um, she's had some unique um, roles in leadership and representing our community very well. Uh, she has been involved in HIV and AIDS for, for decades, but between her staff and support, and her leadership, and of course, Speaker Pelosi, right across the bridge, and her commitment, 
we feel really good about the kind of engagement that we're getting. And because of their support, we feel really confident about being able to help people who want to get to the conference who may face challenges in terms of being able to get in or any issues associated with that. As long as well as the question that you've raised around making sure it's affordable, making yes. sure people feel safe, making sure they can get affordable housing, yes. all of these things so that they're comfortable. Now, tell us about the epidemic here in Oakland. What's special about it in terms of the challenges that you face, that we've faced here over the last few decades? And then what is your message to the organizers of this new Trump administration uh, initiative about what it'll take to be successful here in Oakland? One of the things that people don't realize that Oakland is a very diverse city with many different types of communities who live here, representing almost any ethnic group you can find internationally. So we have lots of different people. And I think one of the differences is that we're also, the way that we're set up, there's Oakland City and Alameda County, et cetera, and we don't have as much resources as we need in order to adequately address the issue. And most of it is about addressing all of the other social, societal um, issues that are associated with HIV thrives. So we're talking about poverty and violence, and we're talking about all of those kinds of ills that makes you more susceptible to HIV. And that's not unlike many cities. So what is really tale of caution is to make sure that we just don't have more resources, and then we do the same thing as we've done in the past. Um, we need to have different ways of how we provide education and, and information. They need to be culturally appropriate. We need to think in terms of language when you have a diverse community with people from all over the world. We need to um, make sure that our access is equitable, that the technology and the drugs that can make a difference are available across the board and not limited to just those who can afford it. And we're making strides, not just in Oakland, uh, you know, elsewhere, but it's still a major issue. So I would say to the architects of, you know, the plan to eradicate HIV by 3030, that they take in consideration the communities that they're targeting and then figure out ways to provide information and services that are appropriate for that community. Now, there's been some opposition to having the conference in the United States, in Oakland and San Francisco in 2020. Some of that opposition's here in Oakland itself. It's not unusual. There's nothing unusual or exceptional about having some opposition. When the conference returned to the United States in 2012, after 22-year hiatus, there was opposition and there were satellite conferences held um, in India and elsewhere. So tell us about the opposition. Tell us a little bit about that process. So I can absolutely appreciate the concerns that are being brought forward um, about having the conference in the U.S., and they're legitimate concerns. And I think that what we need to do is, is listen to those concerns and address them the best that we can, and we are doing that. It is not unusual, particularly in the community that, that we live in here, to have people protest and have people be very vocal about the things that they disagree with. So we're planning for that and we definitely respect those things. But for myself, 
I really felt that the benefits of having the conference in the U.S. were so significant. The opportunity to showcase the epidemic in Oakland and, and the things that we are doing that's similar to what communities like ours are facing across the country and actually across the world. And the opportunity to engage internationally at a time when politically we're in such transition and say that this too is an important issue months before a presidential election, that those opportunities were very, very powerful and important. And I had confidence that we can also address the issues, particularly with our political leaders in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. so that people will feel safe and will feel that there's support for them. That's the bottom line. Let's close with the question around optimism and hope. You're an optimist. You wouldn't be in this line of work for as long as you have been if you were not committed and looking at the world with the view of an optimist. So tell us, as you think about your own career and commitments and looking ahead towards 2020, what gives you the greatest hope right now? You know, people used to tell me that I would outgrow this optimism, and as I've gotten older, it's only gotten deeper because I've seen us make change. I first got involved in the southeast of the United States. I first got active politically in the southeast of the United States, and I first experienced what was happening around HIV in the southeast of the United States. And so... I guess the, the alternative is unacceptable. I, I'm not going to be living in despair because I've seen positive change happen. And we all just need to have the will to get the resources, to be focused about making social, political change that we feel deeply about. And I feel deeply about this. It's just not okay, the trajectory that we're on. And we don't have to repeat the mistakes of the past. And we have to do it for the young people coming forward. Thank you for your service and leadership. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. Please subscribe and write a review wherever you listen to your podcast so that more people can find us. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. To find out more about the AIDS 2020 conference, visit AIDS2020.org.